Welcome to the History of Violence, back after a little bit of a break. There is a house in San Jose that was built continuously and without any apparent planning for 38 years. It was constructed by Sarah Winchester, heiress to the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, from 1884 until her death in 1922. At the time of her death, the house had 160 rooms, 47 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 13 bathrooms, 6 kitchens and 10,000 windows, most of which survive to this day despite numerous earthquakes which destroyed many of the houses around it. The Winchester Mystery House, as it's known, has stairs that go nowhere, doors that don't open, and windows overlooking other rooms. A sprawling design that serves to bamboozle visitors, alive and possibly dead. It's a strange house with an even stranger backstory, and it might be the most interesting monument to colonial guilt in the world. But to understand where the ghosts came from, we have to talk about the guns. Specifically, the gun that won the West. The Winchester Repeating Arms Company was founded by Oliver Winchester in 1866. More accurately, it was reformed on top of the Volcanic Repeating Arms Company, which was in turn a subsidiary of an arms manufacturer founded by the famous Smith & Weston Partnership. Crucially, this meant that it inherited the designs and engineers of its predecessor company. The Winchester was named after its largest shareholder, Oliver Winchester. Winchester wasn't an engineer or gunsmith himself, and had actually made his money as a clothing manufacturer. Specifically, he had designed and patented a wide shirt collar for men's dress shirts. These are still known as the Winchester collar today, although they're sort of out of fashion. Winchester bought into the Volcanic in the late 1850s, becoming a majority shareholder, relocating the company, and renaming it the New Haven Arms Company after its new home in Connecticut. The Volcanic rifles were not known for their reliability, and sales were pretty poor. However, the first success for the company came when a brilliant engineer called Benjamin Tyler Henry developed what would become known as the Henry Rifle. This rifle used a 44 calibre round, a new type of ammunition. It could fire up to 17 shots without reloading, and had a higher rate of fire than other rifles at the time. The American Civil War meant that such a rifle would be in high demand. A Confederate colonel referred to it as that damn janky rifle that can be loaded on Sunday and fired all week. However, its relative fragility hampered official acceptance of the weapon by the Union Army. The Army only ordered around 1,800 Henry rifles, but around 7,000 more made their way into the Union Army for a private purchase. That soldiers were willing to spend their re-enlistment bonus on their own equipment speaks of the high regard the rifle was held in. Owning one became a point of pride, and they were particularly prominent in the Army of the Tennessee under Sherman, probably the most influential fighting force of the conflict. It was also used by Sioux and Cheyenne troops to destroy the 7th Cavalry at the Battle of Little Bighorn, a decade after the end of the Civil War, so as a rifle it had some longevity. The success of this rifle led Henry to seek more compensation and he appealed to the Connecticut State Legislature to hand him control over the arms company. In an incredibly American move, Winchester decided to shaft his business partner by changing the company name and having an improved version of the Henry rifle designed. Real art of the deal stuff. 
The new Winchester 1866 model was widely used by private citizens and armed groups during the westward expansion of the US. New design aspects had made it more reliable, while the ability to fire multiple shots without reloading meant that it was ideal for use on horseback. Previously, you would have had to dismount to fire and then reload your rifle, a major disadvantage during planes warfare. Or alternatively, you, you could rely on handguns with less power and range. The Winchester was therefore perfectly suited to the tactics of the later Indian Wars. It also found popularity with foreign armies, with the Ottoman and French governments buying thousands. The successful use of these arms by the Ottomans to drive off a larger Russian force armed with single-shot rifles inspired the Russians to develop their own repeater rifle, while the Swiss army also copied the Winchester in their domestic arms industry. So, by this time, the Winchester Repeating Arms Company was a major player in the weapons industry. The most famous model the company ever produced was the Model 1873, which is known to this day as the gun that won the West. The most interesting thing about this is that it was a tagline from their own marketing. Private arms sales were not the mild taboo that they are in many parts of the US today, and it was a very direct marketing campaign to promote the rifle. They also produced a 1 of 1000 grade of the gun, taking the units which performed best in a firing test and adding a special finishing trigger set. These sold for a huge markup, making the Winchester a prestige good. But it wasn't all clever marketing. The rifle was well designed, rugged and accurate. Versions of it were produced which could use the same ammunition as handguns, meaning that you could carry multiple weapons without carrying different ammo types. So, while its popularity was based off of a bold marketing campaign, they claimed to be instrumental in the violent expansion of the United States isn't just bravado. It was used in the wars against the native population directly, and it was also used in bison hunting a practice which was supported by the American government as a deliberate attempt to destroy the primary food source of the Plains tribes. This led to starvation and intertribal warfare as the nomadic lifestyle became unsustainable. Over 700,000 copies of this rifle were produced up until 1923, and reproductions of it are popular with gun aficionados to this day. So, the development of the Winchester rifle is pretty interesting in its own right, but even more fascinating is what the heiress to the company's vast fortune did. When Oliver Winchester died in 1880, the company passed to his son William, who died of TB the following year. This left his wife with $20 million, the equivalent to over $500 million in today's money, and a 50% share of the company with profits accruing from that. This made her one of the richest women in the world. Her only child had died years previously, she never remarried, and she had little interest in running the business. There were two things she was interested in though, real estate and the occult. Sarah Winchester didn't leave a diary, and there are few surviving letters, so there is pretty limited primary material about her life or her motivations. As is often the case, this lack of certainty has allowed interesting legends and theories to pop up around her and her macabre estate that she built up around herself. I will present a few different angles on this, but there's no way of knowing for sure what the truth is about her actions. That's what makes it a mystery house, I suppose. The legend, which started during her lifetime, goes like this. Sarah was a spiritualist who believed herself plagued by the ghosts of the people who had died because of her family's rifle, the same rifle that had built her fortune. Perhaps it was these angry spirits that had caused the untimely death of her husband and daughter. She became convinced, reportedly during a seance, 
that the only way to assuage these ghosts was to build a place to house them, a place where she would sleep, trapped with her guilt, in order to make amends with the innumerable ghosts of the American genocide. This explains why the house was built endlessly. One newspaper report from the time stated, The sound of the hammer is never hushed. The reason for it is in Mrs Winchester's belief that when the house is entirely finished, she will die. In fact, it was this newspaper report which gave birth to the legend around the house. This theory also explains the apparent lack of planning in the house. The labyrinthian nature of the building would confuse the spirits. Sarah is also rumoured to sleep in a different room every night to avoid any ghostly revenge. This is a wonderfully powerful image, bringing together tragedy and guilt and violence in the occult. A faded, eccentric widow, beautiful and intelligent in her youth, but broken and driven mad by guilt. This has been adapted and referenced in several books and movies, understandably so. It's classic, gothic Americana. But, and it's not entirely unbelievable. Eccentric rich people have been driven by their own strange beliefs throughout time, and belief in the occult was quite widespread at the time especially among middle and upper class women. Sarah was highly educated, by some accounts a prodigy. She spoke a half dozen languages, she had a long-running interest in classical literature, religion and the occult. She was said to be a follower of Theosophy, a syncretic blend of esoteric Western occultism and Eastern spirituality, similar to Kabbalah. The idea that she believed in spirits is not unreasonable. She kind of fits the profile. However, there are other more prosaic explanations for Winchester's bizarre house. Her father had been a joiner and, and an engineer, and she was a rich, overly intellectual widow with little to do. She took to building her giant house with enthusiasm and creativity, as a kind of project for herself. It was her lack of experience that explains the strange nature of the house, and her desire to build some sort of avant-garde new form of architecture. Rather than hire an architect, she directed this construction all herself. She hints at this in a letter to her sister. I am constantly having to make an upheaval for some reason. For instance, my upper hall, which leads to the sleeping apartment, was rendered so unexpectedly dark by a little addition that after a number of people had missed their footing on the stairs, I decided that safety demanded something be done. This perhaps explains the unusual design choices. But why the gigantic size and never-ending construction? Well, firstly, the construction was not as never-ending as the newspapers portrayed. While the legend holds that construction happened 24-7 for the rest of her life, there are letters in which she mentions dismissing the workmen for an entire season due to poor weather conditions. Another explanation for the long-running nature of the project is that she was building the house during an economic downturn. Some people have speculated that the construction project was in some small way an act of charity, as the obscenely rich heiress employed a vast number of local workers on her project. She was known to engage in philanthropy, and she had donated $1 million to a hospital in her hometown of New Haven. It was actually this economic aspect which most exercised the press during the construction. Before Sarah Winchester was a byword for paranoid occultism, she was portrayed as a symbol of decadent waste. In addition to the Winchester Mystery House, she also owned extensive property across the Bay Area, including a 140-acre ranch and a gigantic houseboat called Sarah's Ark. The Ark was reputedly purchased due to Sarah's belief that a second giant great biblical flood was imminent. As well as being a real mix mixing of Christian and occult paranoia, this was probably untrue. Rich people on the West Coast tended to own houseboats, 
as they were a major status symbol. Eccentricities aside, Winchester was a multi-millionaire real estate developer with some strange vanity projects. The film scholar Homey King has actually made the argument that rather than being a manifestation of her guilt, Winchester's construction projects actually reflected the same kind of settler colonialism which her family's rifle had enabled. Having taken the West at the point of a gun, the American elite stripped California of gold and used it to fund a gilded age. Winchester was avant-garde, intellectual, but still ultimately just an example of capitalist exploitation. A fitting precursor to the modern Bay Area in Silicon Valley, which engages in rispacious capitalist exploitation behind a veneer of performative progressivism. So, Sarah Winchester is not the gothic avatar of colonial guilt that legend tells her to be. However, I think the fact that her legend was built up in this way does say something interesting. The Winchester rifle was used to facilitate the genocide on which America was built. It wasn't the rifle that did this, of course, but the people and the government. Nevertheless, it is a neat and powerful story to see the person whose fortune was most closely tied to the violence be driven mad by guilt, and to see her sprawling mansion as a monument to the dead. It's a kind of poetic, tragic justice, but it's also a very convenient justice, scapegoating one person, one woman specifically, for the violence on which an entire economy was built. At best, it's a very compartmentalised justice, with the collective guilt of a nation transferred onto one person and into one house. At its worst, you could see this legend as a way of dismissing the very concept of grieving for the victims of the American genocide. It's something only a crazy old superstitious woman would do. Not that the house is even presented as a memorial to the victims of the Winchester rifle or colonialism more generally. It functions as a museum today, but the focus is on the building as an architectural curio. It is more the legend of Sarah Winchester as a person that serves as a kind of metaphor and avatar for collective guilt. This tension between genuine contrition and performative grief is true to some extent of many atrocity memorials. If you travel around Europe, you'll see lots of quite touching memorials to the victims of the Second World War. Some people have argued that these are less of an apology and more of a way of assuaging collective guilt. It was on these grounds that senior members of the Jewish community criticised a large memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin. But despite these valid critiques, memorials of this nature do show at least some acknowledgement or admission of guilt by the state. It's noteworthy that in America there have only been two attempts to build large monuments to Native Americans. The Crazy Horse Monument in South Dakota and the National American Indian Memorial in New York Harbour. Both were started with private funding and neither was ever finished. Indeed, the Crazy Horse Memorial has been criticised as a disrespectful money-making scheme by some descendants of the famous Lakota chief. I think it says something about the conception of history that there's no real national monument to the Native American victims of the westward expansion. And perhaps the closest they've come is a story full of half-truths and outright lies focused on one eccentric heiress in her bizarre house in California. This resistance to facing up to the history of settler colonialism is mirrored, of course, in the UK, Australia and elsewhere. The British government funded a memorial to the Mau Maus it tortured in Kenya but there is no such monument in the UK. Sydney has a memorial to the victims of the Armenian Genocide, but no large memorial to the victims of the Aboriginal Genocide. So, 
Sarah Winchester and her mystery house have a complicated legacy, and one that I don't think I have really scratched the surface of. It's a powerful story about grief, guilt, guns and the Gilded Age. I'm not sure if there's any clear meaning to take away from it, but perhaps it's a good example of how we often see what we want to see in history. You can view Sarah Winchester as a crazy old widow, as a decadent and wasteful heiress, or as someone who felt the justifiable guilt of a nation. Like a lot of the best stories, a lot of it isn't true. To get a clear message out of it, you kind of have to do the work for yourself. So, sorry. But I hope you enjoyed the episode anyway. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening and um, hope to see you back here soon.